Welcome to Inside Ulster, the rugby podcast from the Bell Tell, with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendrick. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another week and another episode of Inside Ulster. As we come to the end of the Autumn Internationals, Ireland are three for three in success. And as well as that, Leinster's Josh Vanderflair has been named World Rugby Player of the Year. So we'll be diving into that, as well as reviewing Ireland's arguably sketchy win over Australia at the weekend, debating some opinions of the game and checking in on the performances of our Ulster men. Of course, we'll be previewing Ulster's game against Zebra coming this Friday, which unfortunately involves a few injuries for Dan McFarland's side. Also, as is a running theme on this podcast and seemingly just world rugby in general lately, we'll be talking about the moment of controversy during Australia's 13-10 defeat to Ireland as Aussie scrum half Nick White returned to the field of play after taking a knock to the head, looking shaky in the aftermath. I'm joined as usual by Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley and Belfast Telegraph sports journalist Adam McKendry, who's not long back from a lovely golfing break in Spain. You just had to throw that in there, didn't you? Like, I was going to let that go by, but if you're going to mention it, then we'll just talk about that for the 45 minutes. You know, I'm all, I'm good with that. We were talking, I mean, Johnny, last week we were talking about how um, you'd be coming back with a nice a nice tan and stuff for all the listeners, even though they can't see you. Right, no, let, let me clear this up right now. I don't tan, I burn. So... <laughs> The the factor fifty was layered on, which is why I've come back probably wider than I was whenever I left. So sorry to disappoint. I was gonna say you've literally come back to like the worst the worst rain we've seen in a while. And um, what was what was the Aviva Stadium like on Saturday, Jonathan? Weather wise, weather and sports wise. Weather wise, it was fine. Yeah, um, grand, dark obviously because it was an eight o'clock kickoff, which. Uh, Nobody likes from a journalist perspective. But, um, <laughs> I think the fans were a lot happier than uh, the one o'clock kickoff, which I complained about as well. Five thirty is basically the peak kickoff time. That's uh, the, the thrust of my argument here. Not, not too early that you feel like you have to ruin your morning traveling down. Not too late that you feel like you're getting home at four in the morning. More just the fact that there's like an atmosphere without being on deadline. You're like the bears and and. What's that fairy tale called? Is it Goldilocks? Goldilocks, Goldilocks and just, the three just, bears. Just, yeah. right. just, yeah. just right. Just five o'clock, just warm. Half, warm. half five is the, uh, is the last bed in uh, Goldilocks. I've got, I've got some bad news for you. We've got a 1pm kickoff for, uh, for the sale game coming up next month. Well, you see, that's actually different because the one o'clock kickoff there is fine because it means I can get over and bag in one day. No, 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 no. no. Hold on, hold on. You can't have it both ways. If you think a 1pm kickoff's too early... At the Aviva. You can't then have it the same way for the AJ Bell. Yeah, I can because I have a long history on this podcast of openly admitting that I only care about how these things affect me. So this one o'clock kickoff affects me positively, whereas normal one o'clock kickoffs affect me negatively. D- despite the kickoff times, Jonathan, <laughs> what did you think? Good to have need to get us back on track. <laughs> yeah. Mad tangents. Um, I'm going to sort of kick off as well because I like looking at what, what our columnists um, and different people write in the Belfast Telegraph and former Ireland rugby player Tony Ward said, as they say, a win is a win, so we'll take Saturday's victory, but it was low on attacking quality or cutting edge creativity. Andy Farrell will take the win, but Ireland's halfback conundrum should still be a serious worry. Uh, is that something you agree with, Jonathan? Yeah, because I thought it was interesting how some people presented the win as finding a different way to win or which 
in a way it was, and I'll accept that, but that it showed Ireland not as reliant on Johnny Sexton as um, we have thought they are in the past. Whereas I thought the exact opposite, and it's nothing to do with Jack Crowley in the same way as against Fiji. It's nothing to do with Joey Carberry. But to me, Ireland still look a couple of percentage points off across the board. I'm not talking about at 10. I'm talking about across the board. The performance level drops when Sexton's not there. And as we saw on Saturday, you can be 15 minutes away from a game and something happens to Johnny Sexton and then all your plans go out the window because we'll come on to this later. But like, while... Ireland deserve credit for winning, credit when not at their best, and credit for coming through a test that was clearly designed to frustrate them and designed to stop their strengths. The fact of the matter was, a better informed team, and we are talking about a team that lost to Italy a week before, albeit with a lot of changes, but like a better informed team would have beaten that Ireland performance and that Australia could have beaten that Ireland in the last two minutes, even after Ross Burns' kick. And don't forget, they also could have went for a draw if they had have wanted to. Like, they kicked their penalty to the corner, whereas Ireland kicked theirs to the posts. If, if you flip the South Africa and Australia games around in terms of, you know, if you played South Africa in that final game, you're probably talking about two wins and a loss. The South Africa game... I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, not, sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm, I know yeah. exactly what you're doing, but it, uh, it it leads on to the wider point. I think the South Africa win, winning that way, was encouraging. Even though you could make the argument that if Pollard had been playing, South Africa would have won. It was a game that could have went either way. And I think we sat here after that game and were largely wholly positive about winning that way and winning a close one and winning a tight one. But at that stage, you didn't really expect Ireland to fail to fire in the next two weeks as well. like You can say that their attack didn't fire against South Africa, but the way that they came through that physical challenge was still impressive. And it, it was, and it is in isolation and as part of the wider window. But I don't think at that stage any of us would have expected that Ireland's attack would look as blunted as it did by two sides that I think looked at what Ireland did in the summer realised how important to Ireland's improvement over the last 18 months the breakdown has been in getting quick ball the breakdown and you know you can say that about any rugby team but we're talking about the team with the fastest rock ball in tier 1 rugby so it's that is their strength and I think Fiji and Australia both looked at it and were like if we can disrupt that if we can make it messy if we can make it scrappy and it was scrappy like it was no, it was not a good test match. I've seen some people say they enjoy it, enjoyed it because it was engrossing and it was tight, but it was not. It was not good. Um, I have been reminded this week that international rugby is a hard game to play, and I'm not losing sight of that. But it was not good. What a, what an easy thing it is to be an international test rugby player. Uh, it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly harder than just talking about it. I'll, I'll admit um, that. I'm I'm gonna agree. I think the breakdown played a massive role in this game. And I don't disagree that Johnny Sexton would have improved Ireland. And I think it's more from an authoritative point of view than a necessarily playing style of view. Psychological. Yeah, like I think 
Jack Crowley is a very talented player. He's still very raw. Like he he's making his first start for Ireland against Australia. Naturally, as soon as you see that as Australia, you're gonna target that and you're gonna try and take away what is his best weapon, which is playing with front foot quick ball. And they did that. They made the breakdown an absolute mess. And I thought that uh I thought the ref just sort of lost control of it, to be honest. Like I, I thought there was an absolute free for all on the floor. But that's exactly what Australia wanted to do. They wanted to take the quick ball away and naturally whenever you're playing on the back foot and as you know to coin an American term like a rookie fly half whenever you don't have that sort of reassurance of I'm playing with quick ball I'm able to do what I want with it whenever you're playing on the back foot at test rugby level whenever you've got big guys up in your face really trying to make it hard for you naturally it's sort of a bit of a sink or swim moment and I don't think Crowley's necessarily come out of this game having hurt his potential for further game time but equally I think that's probably a real learning curve for him that it's good that he has now as opposed to needing him to find it maybe at the tail end of the Six Nations or during the warm-up games it's better that he has that experience now and he can go back to Munster and he can use that and potentially play in some of the some of the bigger games going forward for them now I would detach Uh, the whole thing from Carly to be honest because like I don't, th- I think Crowley played well, and I think he fitted into the system well, especially given the context of this is a guy who was Munster's third choice at the start of the season, hadn't played Test rugby two weeks ago, and was getting his first start against Australia with fifteen twenty minutes notice. So I don't think it's really any, or sorry, my concern anyway is not really anything to do with Crowley or who plays ten if Johnny Sexton's out. It's the fact that when Johnny Sexton isn't there, and Paris notwithstanding this year, because they did play well in Paris, everything just looks a little worse when Sexton's not there. And it, it's like I said, I don't think it's anything to do with who's playing 10, but you talked about like this being a good time to learn that lesson. And I completely agree with that, because I think this is a good time for Ireland to say, right, Fiji and Australia have probably provided better teams with a blueprint. Because we saw this to happen to Joe Schmidt's Ireland as well, where essentially teams looked at what Ireland were doing well and it was slightly it was slightly different what Ireland were doing well then to what they're doing well now but teams still looked at that and everybody remembers the start of the 2019 Six Nations which came off Ireland's best year ever in their history Grand Slam beat the All Blacks win a series in Australia and 2019 that England game to start the Six Nations like I remember the narrative around that game it was like you know would any England players get in the in the Ireland team and England absolutely smashed them and there wasn't enough time for Ireland to recover in time for the World Cup and we saw the rest of that year we saw the warm-up game in Twickenham the loss to Japan the quarter-final against the All Blacks it was like Ireland were still trying to do what had made them such a success in 2018 and 2019 and the wheels came off so for Ireland to have, as I say, this idea that Fiji and Australia provided the blueprint of how teams are going to try and negate what Ireland did against New Zealand in the summer. And Ireland now know that they need to adapt, they need to evolve. And I think that they will, because at the end of the day, we're talking about very, very intelligent rugby coaches. You know, 
Paul O'Connell will work out in the same way that he came in and fixed Ireland's breakdown issues. Paul O'Connell will work out what the issue was um, over the past two weeks and evolve what they're doing at the breakdown to counteract what teams are now doing to counteract them. Andy Farrell will be the same. So I think it's a good window for Ireland. Like At the end of the day, that's what... Um, Five wins in the last six against Australia when they had beaten us one before this run started. They had beaten Australia three times since 1979. So it's not that you're turning your nose up against test wins against what are still big Southern Hemisphere teams. But I think the fact of the matter is moving forward. So not taking these games in in isolation, but taking them as a whole and saying, right, what do Ireland need to do moving forward? I think it's clear that 10 months out from the World Cup, they know that they need to be evolving everything that they were that they're doing from even the New Zealand tour which was only five months ago do you think as well though like I know you were talking about as well Jonathan that you thought the match was scrappy and maybe not great quality rugby but do you guys think it's a sign of a great team that the fact that they did get the win with that 76 minute penalty from Byrne who because I was reading one of your pieces you know you said that arguably he's Farrell's sixth choice um, you know, do you think that is that is the sign of a good team that they do get over the line in those situations and is that a good you know talking point for how they are going to get on in the future then in the new year I think it is the sign of a good team so Depth. <laughs> Ireland have been a good team this year and that's the sign of a good team that they managed to uh, come out on top of those games but I don't think you can rely on doing that moving forward for all the reasons that we've outlined because better teams are going to look at that blueprint like Fiji and Australia and huge parts of the reason why I said I didn't enjoy either game was the opposition's discipline that's not part of a tactic to try and slow the game down that's just being poor they're just two sides that have poor discipline we've seen that in all of their other tests as well like and if you're playing a side that doesn't have such poor discipline that doesn't just persistently get pinged for the same thing like I've never seen a team pinged for neck rolls consecutively in that way one of which caused them a try so like I think you can't rely on that you know you can't rely on the opposition bailing you out which is sort of what happened in the last two weeks in terms of the opposition's discipline I think you know you can make the argument that they sort of got bailed out by South Africa's inability to kick their goals um, in the first game but at the same time like Colby's uh goal kicking has actually been quite good in their other tests that they've played since Ireland but so essentially what I'm saying is in answer to your question it is the sign of a good team in 2022 but that's not enough to be a good team in 2023 yeah there's your headline yeah you, you've that's, all that's to put a bow on what was turned into quite a rambling point you, you've also got to add in the context and I know we have mentioned this already but Australia could have gone for the draw there like, yeah. if, if that's a World Cup game, which is the sort of context we're framing all of this in, you're taking that kick goal and you're taking extra time as opposed to trying to win it by going for the corner. I don't think Australia would have gone for the corner if it had been a game where it mattered. It was Some more teams ju- love draws in autumn internationals. That's what we found out this weekend. <laughs> um, oh, Marcus Smith. Lovely taking the, the headlines away from everyone else. Um, so... If you put it into that context, have Ireland really won this game in a way where you can say, like, 
no questions. You know, if this was a a big game, would they have won that? Look, Foley might miss the kick. Ireland might go up the other end of the pitch after Foley kicks a penalty and they they score again anyway. You know, we don't know. But for me, I don't think you can sit back and say, well, Ireland won this the hard way. I think, you know, they, they put themselves in a position where on another day, Australia might have taken the kick goal and it would have been a draw. And that'll frame all of your conversations afterwards completely differently. You know, we're not sitting here talking about Ireland winning tough. It's they threw away a potential win against a team that aren't great, have lost to Italy the week beforehand. And then you're sort of questioning, you know, like, well, was this such a good window for Ireland? So I do agree with John. I, I think they're coming away from this with things to work on. Mm-hmm and things to improve on and to me that means it is a good window because if you're coming away from this you know hammering teams by 30 points and thinking you're the greatest thing since sliced bread I think you're probably in the wrong mindset coming out of the autumn internationals equally if you're coming away from all three games having been beaten by 30 points like if if you're Wales at the moment I don't think you're coming away from this international window feeling good because you've got things to work on because you've just lost to Georgia. Like I, I think there's a lot of soul searching going on in Wales at the moment. Ireland are in a good position where they've got the wins and they have things to work on. But I do think you can't look at that Australia game and come away going, it's great we won that and we did it the hard way. I think there's going to be a lot of people sitting in that room thinking that's a game that we really got away with there and on another day it could have been a completely different story. Mm-hmm. And honing in just specifically on Ulster, what did you like? What did you make of Stuart McCluskey's performance, Adam? It was a lot better until Bondiaki came on and scored a try. Um, I'll say that now. Look, look Stu had another good game, taking taking Aki out of it. And the, the, the issue is, so much of the talk around McCluskey is now going to be framed around the fact that Aki came on and scored. Yeah, and. It shouldn't be, but unfortunately it is because whenever you're talking about a position that is so hotly contested as centre in the Ireland squad, every little thing that a player does is considered to be that that thing that might get them on the plane to France in a year's time. Or it might be, you know, that one mistake might be the thing that costs them their mm-hmm. place in France in a year's time. So for me, I think if you look at the window as a whole, the fact that he got three straight starts even though he he wasn't supposed to get one in the first game. But the fact that he got three straight starts, I think, is a sign that Ireland have taken notice of what he's doing. It's not that he was just put in there for the sake of it. You know, he he got the start against South Africa. He held on to his shirt. He got the start on Saturday. And again, look, he added just that little bit of physicality that I think Farrell does like from his centres. You know, we know he likes Aki because he's a real bulldozer in the centre. And who better to play that bulldozer role than the banger bulldozer himself? But more importantly than that, I think he just acts as that fulcrum. He he does exactly what he does for Ulster, which is that he acts not only as that strong man in the carry, but he started to play that link-up role that I think a lot of people outside of Ulster weren't 100% sure he could do. But whenever you give him the opportunity to show that whenever he's wearing a green jersey everyone suddenly realizes actually this guy's got good hands this guy can be you know that deception guy in midfield where you think he's gonna run then he pulls the ball back and there's the space opened up so 
for me, if I'm Stuart McCloskey, I'm coming away from this camp probably feeling the best I've ever felt coming away from an Ireland camp. I just wish that whoever scored the try uh, that got the win was not Bandayaki, but it is what it is. I just keep thinking of that as you were speaking there. Do you know that old saying, comparison is the thief of joy? Mm. And then for him, it's just comparing. Yeah. That's 100% it, because the two things should be completely independent, like McCluskey's performance and Bondiaki scoring a try that was really created by Caelan Doris. Um, mm. You know, McCluskey would have scored that try as well, running off a carry like Caelan Doris made. Um, but I think the fact of the matter is, he, regardless of Saturday, I think he was unfortunate on Saturday that Ireland didn't play more creatively because I think it would have been a good opportunity for him to show the creative side to his game rather than just running into have having to run into the teeth of the Australian defence. It wasn't like he was choosing to do it. Um, but that's going to be a really interesting position moving forward because even with the 33-man World Cup squad, and I'm just like noting this down in my, in my jotter here, I think you probably go nine front rowers four locks seven back rowers which is 20 forwards I think you probably go five halfbacks do you reckon that's fair so that's 25 well yeah th- three scrum halves two fly halves and yeah. you're you're probably yeah. going to have someone somewhere else in the squad who can also play fly half but you don't want them to play fly half unless they absolutely have to yeah yeah and you're going to take five back three players, so that's you up to 30. Mm-hmm. So even in a 33-man squad, that means you're only taking three centres. So, And you, you, you're sitting here right now, you've got to say Henshaw and ring rows are locked. Now, bear in like mind, that's, that is assuming that you take nine front rowers and seven back rowers. Well, we've seen in the past that Ireland do sometimes take Eight front rowers and yeah, the extra. Yeah, I think that's just with the thirty-one man squads. So, with this, the the point of the extra man, I assume, is to get get away from that. Right. Well, we need a prop that can play both sides because that's all. You know, every. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Finley, was it Finley Beelan the last time? I think was the one that they're like. Well, Andrew Porter technically kind of filled that role because he was just sort of starting that transition from tight head to loose head and he was still sort of in that position where he could play both. I I don't imagine you know the answer to this off the top of your head, but like what's the what's the sort of rule for like replacements within the squad? Like if someone gets injured, are you just able to replace as you go? Like if if so say for example Ireland took uh five props if someone gets injured, are they able to fly someone straight out or is yeah, there Yeah, well you know we've we've seen that before even, you know, Rob Herring was flown out to Japan and then flown straight back because Ireland lost the next day I think he basically did captain's run and uh, was 24th man for the quarter final and then back again so um, not like again not to get too waylaid by the World Cup but just framing people's standings in the squad by the fact that it's one thing getting into a 39 man squad for the Autumn Internationals or even a 39-man squad for the Six Nations, but it's only 30... It's, even though it's an expanded squad, it's still only 33 for the World Cup. And when you crunch those numbers like that, that shows you how hard it's going to be to get in. Mm-hmm. What do you think in terms of 
because I was saying in the intro, we keep coming back to this, you know, head injuries and these hard tackles. Um, so the Australian player, Nick White, he, he looked to have been stunned. He dove the legs of Mac Hansen um, in an effort to prevent a try. He sort of got it wrong and his head collided off Hansen's leg. Um, and then during a TMO check, um, in which the Ireland try was then chalked off, um, White received a check from one of his medics. He was then involved in another collision with Josh van der Fleer, and at the next pause in action, he was checked again before leaving the field for a head injury assessment. He was able to return to the field of play after that check to make sure he had no concussion, and he ended up playing until the final whistle. Um, I know on Virgin Media, Rob Kearney and Matt Williams were both in disagreement about that. Um, you know, Kearney said it was uncomfortable viewing, whereas Williams was like, no, I disagree. We're not doctors. You know, he, he got checked. Um, what are your, I know we kind of talk about this a lot lately. But what do you, what did you think of that specific incident, Jonathan? Yeah, I just think it's an, it's another incident that just raises questions over whether the HIA is fit for function. And I don't think it is because, um, you know, this isn't having a go at Australia because we've seen this very recently with Ireland on the summer tour to New Zealand as well, where players pass an HIA having looked unsteady. And that's a sort of catch-all phrase, you know, what does it mean to look unsteady? But you know it when you see it. And that is meant to be when, th- when that happens, you're out of the game. And it's obviously telling that he's now in the middle of a 12-day stand-down, having finished the game. Like, I just assumed that he was gone for the game. Like, I made the note under my substitutions that he was gone, and then he came back, and then we had more sort of confusion because the scrum half ended up um, filling in elsewhere. Sorry, the replacement scrum half ended up filling in elsewhere in the back line. Uh, again, not what you need for an 8 o'clock kickoff on deadline. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, again, like, it's a disgrace, but it's sad to me that it's not even the most disgraceful incident of the week. Like, rugby likes to paint itself as, like, you know, the world leader in dealing with concussion and then you watch the England Iran match in the football world cup yesterday it's like well that's probably why you're the world leader in concussion (laughs) because everybody else is actually even worse but like that doesn't excuse what we're still seeing and it's yeah you're right like we have talked about this a lot but it's one of those things that you have to keep talking about because we're not where as a sport it needs to be because you know I've written about this ad nauseum we've talked about it so much in the podcast but we're not talking about like you know how do we uh, speed up the game should we have water breaks or not um, how do we fix offside line, <laughs> offside lines encroaching like this is something that isn't about improving the game as a spectacle we're talking about improving the game for generations of players that will come after some of whom will look at rugby and be like why would anybody play that that doesn't make any sense so like that's the issue or that's the severity of the issue and the weight of the issue that we're talking about I think as well like in fact like in terms of player safety it also progresses the longevity of the player I mean if they're getting less concussions or getting treated better for it you like to think their their career their early career will progress longer and I know as you said Jonathan we, we do talk about it and write about it a lot but I think the fact that it keeps happening like you say that's 
you know, what do you think, Adam? That's we have to keep talking about it because of the fact that it keeps happening, and then the fact that it keeps happening is is more reason to think. Well, why why is it happening then? I feel like I repeat myself in this podcast every single week, but the fact that we are in a situation where is it two or three governing bodies are being sued for essentially negligence for not looking after their players for concussion because of long-term effects that it's having. And we are still in a position where a player is going down very clearly dazed. Like it's, it's not even like questionable incidents. It's incidents where you are very clearly noticing that this is happening. And the safe thing still is not being done. Now, we can't speak for what's going on whenever they do these tests. So, for all we know, under the letter of the law, by what they have to follow, Nick White passed all those tests. But it's very clear that you can't bring a player on whenever he's been hit like that. You can't bring a player back on. So, those have to change. Mm -hmm. They have to change those behind the scenes. And we've seen it, as Johnny mentioned there, it was a it was just a bad week in general for concussion related problems with the England Iran game like that to me that was even worse um because you you don't need concussion protocols to see that he should have been off yeah. the the, the Iran goalkeeper nose. it it just baffles me that you have medical professionals coming on looking at that player and thinking you're okay to continue so for me if you are championing player safety and one of the things that I would be in favour of is having bigger benches Mm -hmm. so if you have say an extra five players on the bench and it just means that if you have because people are worried you know like oh you know we if you lose a player in the the fifth minute to a concussion well that's your plans ruined that shouldn't be a deterrent from following player safety so for me, if you have extra players on the bench and you know you're able to protect against players getting injured and feeling like you have to keep them playing on, if you have extra players on the bench to utilize, I think that would help. But for me, if we are in a position where we are repeatedly week on week talking about these kinds of issues and how they are being mishandled, then something has to be done. You know, it it can't continue this way where you are having weekly discussions. And you you say it jokingly at the start, you know, it it seems like every week we talk about this. That shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it shouldn't be a case of we have to mention this every week. It should be a case of if we are mentioning it every week, it should be we're saying, well done, you guys brought this player off and you recognize the danger and, you know, you followed the... You followed the rules and you kept him off because he wasn't feeling safe. We should not be talking about this every single week in the context that we are. And that that is the most concerning thing to me. You cannot say that you are championing player safety if you are continuing to have these kinds of issues. I think player safety usually is the topic of our, our Ravenhill rants, even though this was in the Aviva, but we keep the alliteration <laughs> going anyway. Um, on a more positive note, uh, we're going to have a wee bit of a debate, but so the World Rugby Player of the Year award is the fourth major accolade 
accolade, sorry. Josh van der Fleer has won in 2022. He was also named EPCR Player of the Year in late May, Rugby Players Ireland's Player of the Year and Rugby Writers of Ireland Best Player. Um, Johnny Saxon was also nominated and Andy Farrell was shortlisted for Coach of 2022 but missed out to New Zealand women's boss Wayne Smith. Um, there were also four other Irish men who were uh, rewarded with places in World Rugby's Team of the Year. That was Tag Furlong, Tag Byrne, Van der Fleer and Johnny Saxon. Well, two more because we already included them. But <laughs> what are your thoughts, Adam? Well deserved for Van der Fleer. Absolutely. Like, I don't want to throw out the old cliche of he's gone away and he's improved his carrying and he's now an, an all-rounded threat. But he, he said that himself. Well, I know he said it himself, but it, it just feels like that's what everybody throws <laughs> out. Um but I think there is something in that. You know, there's something in that in a player that's 29 becoming a world-class player. Because if you think back to the Grand Slam year, so Van der Flair was already relatively established then. And Dan Levy emerged. Dan Levy was arguably the most important player in that Grand Slam mm. campaign. And you thought, right, Josh might not get his place here. And then if you think even as recently as 2019, like it wasn't abundantly clear that he was going to keep his Leinster place because you had Doris and Will Connors emerge at the same time, roughly the same time. And there was an awful lot of talk that Will Connors was going to be the seven of the future. And he's been horrendously unlucky with injuries. He's a brilliant player. But like that's how recently we're talking about Van der Flair. It's not even a nailed-on starter at Leinster. Never mind a nailed on starter with Ireland. So I think, you know, what you say is 100% correct. Everybody's focusing on, in on the carrying, and it's become one of those things that has to be mentioned every time anybody discusses um, Josh's sort of overall game. But the fact of the matter is that it it is noteworthy for somebody to improve so much mid-career that we are now talking about, by definition, the best player in the world over the last 12 months. And like, you, you think of the esteemed company that he's joining in terms of open sides to to win the World Player of the Year. I mean, it's uh, Richie McCall's the obvious one, but I think uh, the Skaltberger won it one year as well. And even just Irish you know, players like to be in uh, the conversation with Keith Wood and Johnny Sexton. Those yeah. are the only two Irish players that won it. So that's a reflection on how well he has played, and the I. I I suppose the only way you can put it is the guy is the best back rower in the game and now he is the best player in the game and I think he's one of the players that if if you took him out of the Ireland team he would be the hardest to replace and I mean that that's an obvious thing to say you know as you know world player of the year you know you obviously don't want him to be playing but if you take Josh van der Fleer out of that team, you lose so much. And no, I, I think it's I think it's fully deserved. I think just the improvement that he has made in his game and the growth that he has had, as Johnny says, from a player who mm-hmm. was sort of in and out of, of the Leinster team and was being pushed really hard for him to establish himself as the guy and then to take his game on another level beyond that is just a testament to the work that he's done. So, um, no, it's a, it's a testament to him and fantastic news. 
one thing I was going to say, because you both touched on it, like he said himself, a period that definitely kicked me on was maybe two years ago, around now, when I wasn't getting picked for some games at Leinster. I wasn't getting picked for some of the Irish games as well. I was sort of in and out of the team. Kind of realised I had obviously always tried to improve, but I was like, I need to really up my game or I won't be playing for Leinster or Ireland. So I want to ask you both, is there anyone, not necessarily like from Ulster, but because that's where our allegiances lie, um, is there anyone you think now that isn't getting picked for teams that could be like Vanderfleer someday? Jonathan, I'll let you take it first. I was looking at you both there, <laughs> pondering. <laughs> um, no, it's interesting because I think we have seen a number of players really improve their standing. Now, the most obvious is Nick Timoney. So that was mine. I've got to start thinking <laughs> of another one. <laughs> so, like Nick Timoney is the most obvious example. So, around the same time that uh, you mentioned that Josh Vanderflair wasn't getting picked for Leinster, you know, he was out of Ulster 23s and is now possibly Ireland's fourth back row um, on the evidence of, the, of this autumn. So, he's somebody that's already done it. Like, but I think we've seen Marcus Ray start to make those strides in the last year when you think about somebody that wasn't in the Ulster team and was sort of very much on the periphery, if you like, and is now one of the first names on the team sheet. Now, he hasn't made that next step up into the Ireland squad. He's somebody that I think you maybe would have expected to see maybe on the emerging Ireland tour, maybe in that A game, but obviously it is a massively competitive position when you look at other uncapped guys like you know Scott Penny and Leinster and guys like that. Um and another one, and again, I don't know if this really qualifies. I don't know why I'm saying three, because I'm just taking all of Adam's options away. <laughs> you, you pretty much are. <laughs> if you come up with the third one that I was going to say, then I'm going to be go, really Go for annoyed. it, Adam. I'll let you go first. I, I, I kind of want to see what Johnny was going to say. I was going to say Tagburn. Well, sorry, I was only thinking of Ulster players. Oh, right. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. fair enough, fair enough. Um, Ethan McElroy would be my other sort of Ulster candidate in he, terms he did cross of my mind actually <laughs> thinking you know somebody who whether you agree with the decision or not having watched him play at school didn't make the Ulster Academy was in the sub academy um came in made his debut in that uh bizarrely unforgettable Leinster game at uh Christmas I think I think that was his debut wasn't it and then mm-hmm. to establish himself in the team last year in Jacob Stockdale's absence and now it's going to be really interesting to see whether when Stockdale's fit, Balakoon's fit, maybe Addison, um, you know, how much game time he gets. But he's going to need probably, and he will uh, sort of admitted this himself in an interview when he was talking to us yesterday, like needs to step up again because with everybody fit, it's a competitive area of Ulster squad. So that's going to be interesting to watch. And next time you ask me for one player, I will stick to one player <laughs> rather than three. What are you thinking, Adam? Who's your perspective? Uh, pl- players of the year in the future? Players of the year of the future? Ireland or Ulster? I don't mean any like, of those players are going to get world player of the year. No. Really. Um, oh, goodness, you, you dropped would, me on would, the Would you have yeah. expected Van der Fleer to get world player of the year two years ago? No, not absolutely not. That's what it means. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go with Mike Lowry then. You know, <laughs> continue our podcast loving with Mike Lowry. Um, I mean, for me, if if you're talking about a potential world player of the year, and look, we're we're just going off the basis of somebody who has a a bit of potential that is just sort of breaking in. I mean, Tom Stewart, I think, is the kind of guy who is just starting to show his potential, and I think he he's got 
a long way still to go, but he's already sort of moved himself almost into second in the pecking order with Ulster, even though he's he's still only what twenty, isn't he? He's, yeah, he's, he's very young. really young for especially for a front rower. Mm-hmm. So a long way for him to grow, but we already see that potential. So you know, for me, if if you're looking at someone in the uh, in the Ulster squad that could potentially become a world player of the year, then it, it's maybe him. But like, you know, there's so many guys, and I think Van der Fleer is possibly that kind of inspiration for guys who maybe are on the edge of squads mm-hmm. or are in their starting fifteen, but maybe are just sort of hanging on to their place. That if you put the, your head down and you work, there is that potential to grow and move to the next level. So this, for me, almost is like a world player of the year. Like you look at some of the winners in the past, you know, Johnny Sexton, Richie McCaw, guys who just had natural talent. You know, the, those are guys who, from a very early age, you knew were going to be maybe maybe they wouldn't necessarily win it but mm-hmm. you knew they were going to be in the conversation Joss van der Fleer is a guy who as we said two years ago you didn't even know he was going to be playing for Leinster yeah. let alone playing for Ireland let alone being nominated for World Player of the Year let alone winning it mm-hmm. so if you are someone like Marcus Wright just to use it as, as an example if you're looking at that and thinking I could never be World Player of the Year. I'm just sort of hanging on to my place with with Ulster, and there's every chance that you know next week I might lose my place or or whoever it is. If you look at Josh van der Fleer and you think, well, if he can go from a guy who wasn't starting in every big game for Leinster to in 24 months' time being World Player of the Year, why can't I do that? That's what makes it so interesting because he is such an outlier. Like the other previous outlier is. Or the the biggest previous outlier is possibly Sexton because Sexton wasn't anointed coming out of school that he was going to be the next big thing, and you know he had to get past Condepomi with Leinster, and then he had to get past O'Gara, and this took a long time, relatively speaking, to the point that he wasn't really an established international in his mid twenties. But by the time he won it in twenty eighteen, he was still had been a world class player for a long time. You know he'd already been it was what five years on from his Lions debut so when you're talking about that being the previous biggest outlier and don't forget Van der Flyer, just whenever you mentioned Lions didn't even tour over the Lions mm. whenever that was a summer and a half ago yeah a year and a half ago yeah you know. moving away from international rugby and on to the United Rugby Championship Ulster will be without Ireland winger Rob Balakoon and Scotland loose head prop Rory Sutherland for Friday's clash against Zebra after both were ruled out due to injury. Adam, what's the stories with the injuries? So Rob picked up a hamstring injury in Ireland training, which makes a lot more sense that he dropped out of the Ireland 23 altogether. Now, I think based on what's been said, it sounded like they wanted to give Jimmy O'Brien a run uh, anyway, but I did think Rob would make the 23 jersey, so that sort of makes a little bit more sense that he he wasn't in the in the squad altogether. Um, Rory Sutherland, as I think most people would have seen, he was stretchered off in the or sorry, carted off is probably the better phrase because he he got a nice uh, armchair ride all the way back to the the dressing room. Um, he picked up a knee injury whenever Scotland were playing the All Blacks, not the weekend just gone, but the weekend before that. 
Um, Dan Super was saying in in the uh, in Ulster's media briefing yesterday, Monday, that they don't expect that to be long term. They're hoping he's going to be back sort of in this next block of fixtures now. Where in that block of fixtures is another question entirely yeah, because it's the, worth noting yeah, it goes to the end of January. Yeah, the block of fixtures <laughs> runs until uh, the end of January. So at which stage he would be away with Scotland thereafter? Yeah, the, the the thing that I will point out with Sutherland is that Ulster knew that they weren't going to get him for very many games anyway. You know, like w- whenever they signed him, they weren't expecting him to forgo his Scotland duty mm-hmm. in order to play for Ulster like that was never the signing they were making Sutherland is a guy that they have signed to make their 15 better in the Champions Cup and in the big URC games you know like some of the Interpros but realistically they were signing Sutherland with the expectation that they were gonna get four Champions Cup pool games out of him any knockout games that they would have and the odd URC game here or there they weren't expecting him to be a massive squad contributor, you know, like whenever they're playing all these games during the Six Nations and stuff like that. So in reality, you know, would he have played this weekend against Zebra? Probably not. Mm-hmm. He'll probably he probably would have played the week before the Champions Cup and the Champions Cup games. But realistically, he may only end up missing maybe one game that he would have played in anyway. He may end up missing none of them if he's back next week. So it's um it's maybe not quite as tough a pill to swallow as it potentially would have been if it was someone else. Um, I haven't heard anything on Balakun. I don't know what you've heard, Johnny. I don't think it's, that's going to be long-term either. It's obviously he has had a few hamstring uh, tweaks and strains, as you would probably expect from somebody that uh, runs as fast as he does. Um, but again, he he probably wasn't going to play this weekend anyway. No. So the talk, the talk is that most of the Irish internationals are having a dying week anyway, regardless of how much they were involved. Now, Balakin obviously played twice, so you, yeah, you wouldn't have expected him to play this week either. You would think that uh, touch wood, you wouldn't need him this week. Um, I was about to say that. I was like, <laughs> without sounding too, too blunt, they were the, the worst team in the league. Um, and they're, they're not going to have their all of their Italian internationals either. You know, they, they might have some of them back again based on how much they played during the autumn internationals but they're they're going to be seriously depleted as well and so. we've seen this before like the team that gets hit worst by this is the italian teams yeah because whatever else they're complaining about uh um not having a couple of players like zebra provide a good chunk of their better players and whenever they're without those players they tend to be pulling in guys from like i'm not saying it's going to happen this week but guys from the club game like we've seen it's not that long ago that like Ulster um, scored ten tries against the Zebra team that featured like semi-pro players from the Italian club game, um, because it was played during a, I think it was a Six Nations, yeah, Six Nations window. Um, so you would like to think that Ulster are going to be fine without these guys for this week, but obviously it is. This is the sort of exception in this run of fixtures. I know they've got uh, Treviso as well um, in January, but like of this ten run of 10-game run of fixtures. You've got three derbies, four European games, the two Italian teams, and you finish with the Stormers coming to Belfast here, obviously still the reigning champions. So it's a massive, massive run of fixtures coming up, and you're going to need the whole squad for it, which is always the case whenever you're talking about the Christmas period anyway, because we know we're going to see rotation for those derby games around then. Um, Because 
Zebra are the only side in the URC. They're still chasing a win. They're an outfit that's been in the end of some real hidings in recent years. Um, is up what you're sort of expecting this weekend then, Johnny? Uh, would you be disappointed if it wasn't an Ulster Hayden? <laughs> you can sort of get trapped a wee bit with this Zebra team because we've seen like the Leinster game springs to mind especially, but like you can think a game's over and then they come back in there because they can't score points in bunches and like they've shown that in the points that they have got while they haven't won they have got you know try scoring bonuses losing bonus points um so it's not a game that you can completely overlook but it should be whenever you're looking at the fixtures that Ulster have had remembering that they had quite a tough start to this campaign it feels like a long time ago now that they haven't played in like a month but um they did have a relatively difficult run to start despite the fact that they got good results so regardless of talking up Zebra and you're wary of talking them up too much as you've pointed out they are the, the <laughs> bottom team in the league and haven't won a game this sorry is a, any fans listen, <laughs> doubt it like our, uh, our Palmer listenership uh, is on, <laughs> up on arms well, we, 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 there's a there's a Twitter account that's coined like the hashtag Bennett and Bandwagon bus or something like that is there anything we can do similar for, for Zebra I don't know if I, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the letter Z really lends itself to that but um, yeah bit like you would expect Ulster to be taking five points from uh, from this game, and that's something that they have been good at this season, maximising their uh, their return from games. You know, you think even to the Leinster loss, you know, they still came back to get the uh, losing bonus points. So the the monster game, which isn't a game that you would ever put down as a five pointer, is the only one that they didn't pick up the bonus point from. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, not to worry anybody, but. Saudi Arabia have just beaten Argentina in the World Cup so if there's ever any evidence that upsets can happen (laughs) we've just had possibly the biggest shock in World Cup history so uh, they'll have a live while we're recording by the way everyone will be listening to tea time yes (laughs) good good point yes Uh, we are recording at 12.07pm on Tuesday afternoon and Saudi Arabia have just beaten Argentina in the World Cup um Jonathan as well, just you were writing in your column for the Belfast Telegraph about how ticket prices have been slashed for this week's game at Ravenhill. Sort of like a Black Friday event for, for Ulster. Combined with the fact that, you know, like it could be, not will be, but could be an easy win for Ulster. Um, full house, Adam, do you think? It's heading, I, I don't think they're going to sell it out. I think as good as the initiative is to bring the ticket prices down and try and get as many people in, it's still Zebra on a cold wet Friday night in November so I don't think they're quite going to hit 18,000 but well, when I, like whenever I was writing my column I, not standing in the terrace but there were only 8 seats left on Ticketmaster whenever I was writing them and that was 24 hours ago but I think like I don't know what do you think but it does say something interesting to me because whenever attendances are falling and we've had this conversation throughout this season you know when there was like 14,500 for Leinster, and I'm always very wary whenever I'm talking about this because I do understand that that's still double what an awful lot of teams get <laughs> for even the biggest uh, the biggest derby games. But like, I was quite surprised that there wasn't more people at Leinster, and like I outlined in the column all the reasons why that could be. But it's interesting to me whenever people are sort of talking about a fall in the apparent demand for tickets, and you know. Does this mean that people are falling out of love with Ulster Rugby? Are people falling out of love with going to games? Are people falling out of love with the experience of being in the stands when you got used to watching games on TV during the pandemic? 
whatever, whatever, whatever. But it's interesting to me that they can still get this amount of people through the turnstiles for what on paper is the least appetizing game of the season from a spectacle point of view. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting. And it would take somebody much smarter than me and much better at numbers than me to work out what the perfect pitch point is of like how much can you charge for tickets that you're not losing money but that you're getting these much bigger gates because it has been quite striking to me for especially the Connacht and the Leinster games just how much space there was in some of the the stands more so than the terraces. No I'd agree and I think we make note of that pretty much every game is that less and less people are going to games and but this is across the board as well, which is yeah, what's interesting. Ab- absolutely. And I can't speak for the Irish League, and I'm not going to because I, I don't go to enough Irish League games to sort of make a comparison. But if I put on my other hat in the Belfast Giants, they haven't seen a noticeable decrease in attendances. So, I mean, I, like, I spent £12 to go to the Glentorn game on Sunday, but uh, I wouldn't say the, the facilities are quite the same as what you get at Kingspan either. <laughs> But the the point I'm trying to make is if you see this uptick in people coming to a game, and as you say, this is possibly the perfect game to do it for because it's a game against the bottom side in the league who are going to be without all their internationals. Now, let's be honest, if you come to the Zebra game, you're likely not coming to the Zebra game to see all the or the Italian internationals anyway. People are but, mad for Pierre Bruno, though. Oh, absolutely. He's engaged now, so, That's you know, this... Um, Congratulations, as if, as if everyone had a chance of them before that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, you know. Oh no, he's got a ring. Never, definitely never. <laughs> I read something about a celebrity this week that was about that very thing. That like fan, there was a backlash from oh, fans because this guy. I can't remember who it is now, but because he got engaged. It's a useless anecdote because I can't remember the person saying it. But it was in the paper last week. It takes it takes away that like oh maybe it's also <laughs> the reason why um, a lot of celebrities don't come out as as gay or bi because then they're they're cutting off an entire. Mm. Lots of people just don't say what they are, but. Well, he's not married yet, Adam, so all the ladies and, and men can still hold out hope. All right. <laughs> we we wish him and his fiance all the best. Um, to, to get back to the point that I was trying to make, you know, th- this is the perfect game to try it because it's the team that you're least likely to choose to go and see. Yeah. It is, as, as I said, it's a cold Friday night in November when you're in a cost of living crisis. People are very mindful of Christmas mm-hmm. and preparing for, you know, presents, uh, having family over, wh- whatever they're saving for. So possibly th- this is the last fixture that you would want to go to if you had all of those things on your mind. And yet Ulster have, I know at the time of, that you were writing your column, Johnny, it was 15,000. By the time it gets to Friday, and I reckon you are going to have some walk-ups where people are saying to themselves, what do you want to do on Friday night? Mm -hmm. Ulster have tickets on sale at slash prices. We could absolutely go to that. You go out, you have a few drinks, you have a good time. Ulster could have somewhere in the region of sixteen to 17,000 people at this game. That's going to be their biggest crowd since before the pandemic I remember they had that string of sellouts just around Christmas and that was but the for- sellouts coming back because you remember they hadn't sold out mm-hmm. for a long time before that and you had that sort of run of games where 
you know, there was a sort of there was a buzz about the team because they were playing well in um, Europe again. Mm-hmm. But it's that sort of scarcity driving demand thing. So people know that they can get tickets on the day, you know, on the gate because, like you say, it's not been a sellout. And you know, you mentioned people having a few pints or whatever, and like that's not to be ignored either because if you have ten thousand people or seventeen thousand people. And you can work out, as I say, a formula that means that the gate numbers are the same in tickets. Then obviously, seventeen thousand people spend more money in the stadium than ten thousand people, whether it be on. Mm-hmm. I was going to say in programs, we can't get programs anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, in the shop, whatever. You know, the problem is that this price is unsustainable. Like I, again, and I'm, I'm going to put myself in exactly the same bracket as Johnny. Like I. I'm not knowledgeable enough in sort of cost of effectiveness in terms of, you know, what is the perfect price point to maximize the number of people through the gate, yeah. but also not making the tickets too expensive that people are turned away from going. But for a game like this to encourage people in, like what else they're trying to do here is they're not trying to just boost their attendance for this one game. It's an it's, incentive. It's an incentive for people to come along and go, well, Jeepers, you know what? I really enjoyed that. I really enjoy going watching a game. I really enjoy standing on the terrace and being part of the atmosphere. I want to come back. And next time they'll be more inclined that instead of spending, you know, it's it's £12.50 for a, for a terrace ticket for mm-hmm. a Friday night. Well, the next time, you know, I enjoyed that so much. You know what? I will spend 20 quid for the next game or, or, or whatever it is. I, I don't know off the top of my head what Ulster's... Uh, terrace tickets are but you know you've lost touch with your people my people this, like, this Friday like you said like if you have kids that are Ulster fans it's probably the best one to bring them to because more likely to get a win kids are happy and then it's like like you said with the bigger maybe more competitive games maybe people won't mind paying a bit more like you said Adam they'll enjoy the atmosphere and they're like well actually do you know what this is a bit of a bigger a bigger game more more to risk um and then yeah, they go like, back. You know, mm-hmm. Let's be honest. The next game's La Rochelle, like so. It's yeah. the European well, champions, and uh, well, I've, I've I've just looked it up there. So the ticket for the East Terrace on Friday is twelve pounds fifty. For the La Rochelle game, it's thirty. So we're talking a seventeen pound fifty increase. We will compare. We'll come back here and compare well, the. Well, the look, sold. looking at it now. Like there's a lot of spaces still available for the La Rochelle game. It would be like Which, fascinating, and if this Zebra game ended up being like the, I don't think it will be. I think they will get a sellout at some stage. But it would be fascinating if this Zebra game was the uh, the highest attended game because it's already interesting to me that it's like Leinster. I'm always a, pr- a pretty stacked Leinster team. You know, Johnny Saxon was mm-hmm. the team, whatever. That Ulster have already sold more tickets for this game than they had at the Leinster game. Mm-hmm. and that Leinster attendance number looked high to me in terms of not how many tickets they sold, but we know that um, in terms of people through the turnstiles, the attendance number is always bigger than what's actually in the stadium due to season ticket holders that aren't at the game. For anyone that is going to the game, you can you can tweet us at Inside Ulster and let us know, and for anyone that's not, we'll be back here next Tuesday to let you know what the atmosphere was like, and of course to review it all, and you can catch up with all our rugby content from Adam and Jonathan, especially of course on belfasttelegraph.co.uk or pick up the paper. Thanks very much. Bye.